Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman. This is episode 71. Um, put out episode 70 a little bit earlier in the week, so last week, so there's been a slightly longer break. Um, two years of podcasting, thanks to those of you who have been listening. Uh, welcome to anyone who's listening for the first time. Uh, thank you to the sponsors, Tea Leaf Tea, Yeasty Boys and Le Petit Chocolat. Uh, this is a conversation I had with Norman Meehan. Um, Norman is a pianist, a musician, a composer, also a critic, a writer, an educator. I've been a fan of his work for a long time and, and we've corresponded a few times, but uh, we only just met recently and I, he was on my list of people I wanted to talk to him. I think I mentioned this at the end of the podcast to him, but yeah, for some reason I kind of felt, because he lived in the same city as me and we'd, we'd shared some emails, I really wanted to kind of meet him before... Uh, meeting him in the context of an interview. So last month at the Jazz Festival, we ended up sitting next to each other at the Bill Frizzell concert, which we talk about in this podcast. And so it was after that, you know, I sort of introduced myself to him there and then went straight home that night and emailed him and said, right, now that we've met, you know, <laughs> come around for a conversation. So we had a great old chat about his musical uh, career and his background. Um, he's done a lot of different things with music. Uh, as I say, he's a, he's a re- I really love his voice as a critic. Um, he's on Concert FM, uh, quite often talking about you know classical and jazz performances. Um, he teaches. He's well, he's sort of retired a bit from teaching now, but he's done a lot of teaching over the years at School of Music, um, at School of Jazz, and. Uh, He's had this collaboration or series of collaborations over the last just over a decade uh, with Bill Manhire and Hannah Griffin. We talked quite a bit about this. So Hannah's a singer. Um, Bill, of course, is a writer. And Norman is a pianist and composer. And the three of them have been uh, working together with sometimes with some other musicians to put a whole lot of New Zealand poems that uh, you know are written for the page, to put them on the stage, to turn them into songs. Um, there's been commissioned works with Bill writing you know brand new pieces for Hannah and Norman to work uh, and then they've gone back and done classic New Zealand poems uh, and yeah from, from Bill and from other poets so we talk a lot about that too um, and you know just a good old chat in general about about music and uh, philosophy and spirituality and the arts and wanting a more contemplative life um, so I thoroughly enjoyed this it was a great pleasure to to uh, a great pleasure to chat to him and a great great way of sort of meeting someone properly we had this quick introduction we've corresponded and then we just sat down and had this lovely chat one morning recently so here you go this is me talking with Norman Meehan I guess I'd like to start with um, how you found music like how music came into your life where you were where you grew up and, and, and how old you were when you had any sort of musical epiphany towards playing or being a listener My father was a minister of religion and my mum played piano or organ in the church so from a very early age we had that music around. Dad was an evangelical minister and the the music in those churches is, well these days I find it appalling actually, it was pretty banal. But when I was a kid they had hymns a lot and um, so I I had music around. Mum mum loves having music on and she played a lot of stuff like Mantovani. Um, so I guess that was the soundtrack of my childhood. It wasn't yeah. pop music. Yeah. And I think probably I've developed a reasonably sort of nuanced harmonic ear because of that. Yeah. You know, the harmonies in that music are quite rich. 
but it took me years to sort out my time field because right. that music is so soft. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, when I got to music school, they really had to sort of crack the whip and make me sort that out. And so whereabouts of the world is this? In New Zealand. Yeah. So, it was it was itinerant. so we moved around. I was born right. in Palmerston North, but yeah. I, don't, I don't talk about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> um, understandably. And then, we, and then we went to South Auckland. We lived in Otara where I started school. So, yeah. you know, I, I went to East Tamaki Primary School. And yeah. it was very beautiful to be enculturated into that, you know, very, very, you know, Maori Pacific Islands um, Caucasian and kind of equal mixes. Yeah. So th- in a way, that's kind of a part of my background, which yeah. I'm re- I feel really privileged to, to have experienced that as a youngster. Yeah, yeah. We went from there to Hastings, where we lived in, first of all, quite a poor area around Camberley, oh, and yeah. then a more affluent area in Frimley. Yeah. Uh, and after that in Christchurch, so then it was mighty white from then on, and and, and a different kind of experience. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's quite um, a few different yeah pockets of New Zealand at that time, yeah. For which I'm really grateful, yes. Simon. It was, it's... There's so many of us just stay in one place until yeah. we move to another, like like I grew up in Hawke's Bay, mm. moved to Wellington, that's my story, you know, like that's it, you know, I've travelled uh, around the country and stuff, but still not enough. Like that's a good story, you know, that's Anthony Donaldson's story. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's uh, several, you know, yeah, lots of yeah, people's, but yeah. that's what I mean, like it's, it's, it's nice to hear people that have, have, have some understanding of what it meant to yeah. be itinerant. Yeah, well, to, to some extent. In a yeah. sense, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, that was, uh, so, so we, we, we had that, that nomadic kind of existence to some extent. Uh, and I, I think that the, I started playing piano at seven because mum was a piano teacher. And yeah. I, but I didn't like it and I didn't practice and I wasn't really exercised by it. And the music that I liked was the, the, the piano soundtracks on silent movies, that sort of frenetic, yeah. um, caffeinated, faux classical playing that yeah. they had. Uh, and I, we, you know, we had the radio and we liked pop music, but I, I was pretty agnostic about it, really. But when I was 11, Gary Brain, the percussionist yes. from New Zealand, yeah. the orchestra, he used to do school tours, and he came to our school and filled the stage up with his percussion instruments. Yeah. And I remember him playing When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again on his tuned gongs or whatever they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. And being really quite exercised by that. And I, and, I, and I think in some ways that very small thing was kind of a small turning point, that, oh, music is something that's done by people. Yeah. for people it wasn't just a noise that came out of a speaker or music for singing you for could, church yeah you could take this somewhere and and mm. give it to people like yeah yeah, yeah that, that there is a performer and an audience that there's a yeah. yeah and after that I sort of started messing around and you know, I learned how to play a C major triad and a G major triad and you can have a lot of fun with that yeah uh, Other instruments or uh, just piano? I goof off on guitar, but it never goes out of the living room. Right, yeah, you, but but at what stage do you go to other instruments? Like, oh, was it seventeen or eighteen? Yeah, okay. It was just piano yeah. until then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and and what sort of when does your musical when do you feel your sort of musical palette as a as a listener widening or or or. A, or finding a focus, maybe not widening, but you know. I guess around when I was fourteen, yeah. some of my friends had records, and I started hearing music that I was really excited by. It was things like Super Tramp, yeah, and Pink Floyd in Kansas, those, yeah, those sort of bands, yeah. And I, I think I like the the sounds. I, I guess you know, with a band like Pink Floyd, yeah, the, the timbre of that music is really appealing. I like Super Tramp because of the piano, and I think and, and you know, yeah. some good melodies. I like Kansas for the sort of the complexity of the. The, the music which sounded a bit like some of the classical music I've been around at home. Yeah, I was going to say, all three of those bands in, in different ways are kind of, you know, they're not, they're not your cliched prog, but they've got elements of prog and they're also pop bands. You know, yeah. there's, there's pop yeah. melodies and pop and pop sonics. 
and yeah. I guess around that age, I heard Jethro Tull for the first time, and yeah. was terrifically excited. Yeah, like a matter of breath on the radio. Yeah, and, you know, great piano introduction, and then this one. I remember that song being a massive thing for me. Like mm. I, um, I think you know the first Jethro Tull song I heard was "Living in the Past," but which was great too. But that obviously prompted me to go and buy like a Greatest Hits, and I just remember listening through to it. And yeah, Locomotive Breath was the standout. And, and it kind of is to this day for me. And you're right, that that piano intro is such a wonderful scene setter. Yeah, you, you don't you don't know what's coming next, and, and it sort of seems to somehow have this you know when the drums and the flute, you know, the swell, the sort of mini orchestral swell, when it arrives each time, it's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, it's it's, it's a terrific song. Yeah, and they were a terrific band. You know, I, I might have twenty tall records. Yeah, yeah. It, it pales a bit for me after about seventy-eight. Yeah, but, yeah. But, no, the craft of their music and, yeah. and Ian Anderson's such a fine songwriter. Yeah. And a good singer in his day. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and performer and all of that. Oh, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, he's uh, electrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was around the age of 15. Yeah, um, cool. And, and in terms, you know, I've, I've had this kind of life as a jazz musician, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would attribute that actually. I was sort of curious about jazz because there was a, a person at school a couple of years older, Tim Bean. Who played kind of blues piano, and I was really excited by that. But it, we went on holiday, and there was an LP, you know, Leonard Bernstein, What Is Jazz? Yeah, yeah. I listened to it, and it was Duke Ellington and Count Basie and a few things like that. But he talked about the music and explained how the 12 bar blues was played. So I worked out on a piano when I got home how to play the blues in C. Yeah. You just need three chords and a blues scale. And that kept me happy for about five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, just working on my blues and see. Yeah. Uh, but I love those bluesy sounds and, you know, the flattened fifth and the, and the minor against major, those sort of things. Yeah. And that, that, that intrigued me and I started to listen to jazz a bit more actively at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so what what else is going on in your life outside of music? What are you doing? Like, you're at school, you finish school, you go through school, do you, you know, do you like it? Are you a good student or do you pull out and find a job somewhere else or what, what, what's going on? I'm com- completely institutional and ordinary really. I went through school to the seventh form. I yeah. was a, a diligent student. Yeah. Hardly ever in trouble. Yeah. And I was a prefect. and <laughs> Mildly boring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's sort of utterly ordinary really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose a, a somewhat rich imaginative life but that didn't filter into my interactions with other people at all. I think I was a completely middle of the road New Zealand kid. Yeah. Uh, when I left school, all of my friends went to university, and I pre-enrolled to do a law degree. But I actually realised that I had no idea what I wanted to do, and so going to university seemed uh, didn't seem like the best choice for me. So I got a job instead. I was employed as an artificial limb maker, of all things, orthopedic wow. prosthetics yeah. at at the Limb Centre in Christchurch, which I did for five years, uh, and it was fantastic for me. It was it's a, a technical training, so I learned to weld and to turn a fit on a on a on a, on yeah. a lathe and to use yeah. a mill and to to um, laminate plastics and and spray paint and all kinds wow. of things. It was a really, really fantastic training, which connected my brain to my hands in useful ways. So yeah. now when something breaks in the kitchen, I can usually fix it. Yeah, right. You um, become a good tinkerer. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I saved money and bought a house and got established, which are, are good things for a young person. Well, it was easy yeah. for a young person, relatively easy yeah, yeah. in the 80s to do that. Um, yeah. Harder now, of course. But if I'd started out as a musician, those things might have been sort of beyond well, reach. I'm just thinking about that job, like what a wonderful thing that job is, because as you say, it's given you all of this, all of this stuff, you know, in terms of engaging your your hands and your brain and all of that. But if, 
to thinking about it, it sounds like working. It's not that far removed from like working in the prop department of a, you know, for a movie or something. <laughs> but you're actually doing something that helps people. You yeah. know, you know. I, I not to say that making movies doesn't help people, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like it's got this great attachment to it. Uh, pardon the pun that you are. Um, <laughs> you're actually creating something for people that they're in need of it. Yeah. yeah in some ways, it was a marriage made in heaven for me. Yeah. Uh, I've, I come from a family of, of my grandfathers were both doers. They were the, my grandfather, and my father's side was an engineer, and, and my mother's father built stuff. He built houses and yeah. bridges and things. So to have that training was valuable, but for it to be harnessed to the service of other people was terribly important to me at that yeah. time. I was quite a devout Christian, and I came from a from a family where most of them were missionaries, and the, the index of value in your life you could measure, and it was the, the degree to which you gave, yeah. you know, which is still a value that I adhere to, and I think it's a terrific one to, to yeah. you know, I've tried to instill that in my children, that the, the amount we give can tell us how valuable we are. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so for me it was really perfect to you know, have this executive hands-on training and to be doing it in the service of people. And um, you say, was a devout Christian, What's your journey with that? I would describe. I, I suppose I'm a Christian, but I'm not a church-going one. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you know. it's in your, you know, you grew up with it. It's instilled. But yeah, you just yeah. you you still understand and appreciate and ascribe to the values a lot of the values, but, but you don't. You're almost I, non-practicing in the sense of turning up. Yeah, it's a, well, I would describe myself as a non-religious Christian. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I believe that, that foundation is there. Yeah, well, I think there's a God, and I think that if God is real, and that demands some kind of response from us. Yeah. But I would actually stop speaking at that point because I think your response to a living God, if, if indeed there is one, is going to be personal, and you'll yeah. work that out for yourself. Yeah. And it's none of my business what other people do about it. It's my business to work out what I should be doing about that. Yeah. So it's you know Christians talk about a personal faith, and I, I take that to a quite an extreme degree and say, well, actually, I. If if there is a God, then I need to work out what that means for me. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. So yeah. I don't proselytize at all. Yeah. And you know, I'm married to someone who who at best could be described as agnostic or maybe maybe a pantheist. You know. Yeah. If right. God exists for Susie, God's in the hills behind Cuddy Cuddy somewhere. You know. Yeah. And I have a daughter who's an atheist and another daughter who's going through <laughs> sacramental training to become a Catholic. Wow. And I yeah. love that. Yeah. Of, of belief and that we're happy, we're pleased with each other. Yeah, I was going to say, you can all sit down and, yeah. and converse around that or anything else instead. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. not the thing that yeah. is a source of tension or anything. No, but yeah. you know, I guess you you know, you know you find light in your life and, and you move toward it or, yeah. or, or revealed truth or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think if we're all different, and we are genetically all different, and we all have different experiences, then we're going to see the world in different ways and, and different things will will be highlighted for us so I'm pleased for that, that range and, and like anything the you know if you go too far down the extreme viewpoint against something you're you're as bad as the extreme viewpoint for something mm. you know it's the you know left and right wing argument that the extremes are, are as bad as each other yeah yeah, yeah I, I've said to my kids you know the thing that I find frightening in life is when I meet people who think they are right yeah you know, yeah. and, and I'm certainly not right. And yeah. you know, as a sort of a middle class liberal, you can feel like you're one of the good guys because you're opposed <laughs> yeah. to Donald Trump or something. Yeah, yeah. We're not the good guys. Yeah. You know, we are one voice in a really rich tapestry of voices in yeah. a very complicated conversation. And and I'm I'm interested in the conversation, I right? so I I am I'm, I'm interested in all the voices being heard. I'm interested in 
in, in us trying to find a way to, to make sense of all this together. Yeah. And you've done that with, uh, uh, skipping ahead a bit here, but I was just, you've, that, that's probably what I first got to to know of you and know your work was through, I think, probably your writing. And, and, and you, you do that. You're interested in dialogue. You, you know, publish this book of just conversations. And I, I love that sort of approach. And I mean, that's what this is, right? Like, this isn't an interview, it's a conversation. And the idea is that we just have a chat and find out where we're going to go as we go. So I, I kind of love the idea of conversations and dialogue too. Yeah. It, I mean, it's that thing too, isn't yeah. it, of, of, of what you just said of, you know, I'm not trying to be right. You know, I yeah, don't yeah. think I'm right. Mm. I want to source other information from other people. Yeah, you're right. I've I, I published three books. The first one was Conversations with Paul Blake. Yeah, and, that's the one. And so, you know, about half of, or maybe two-thirds of the book are Conversations and yes. there's some sort of backstory analysis. Yeah, yeah. Analysis. Uh, and then I, the biography of Mike Knock drew out of, you know, 20 hours of Conversations with yeah. Mike and then quite a lot of kind of contextual research. Yeah. Uh, a, a re- the recent book on New Zealand jazz musicians I'm really pleased with. because I, I haven't got to that yet, but um, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading that, but I love the Mike Knock book. Right. I think yeah, I really um, did. Yeah. What, what I'm very pleased with about the recent book is that I feel like these musicians speak in their own voices. Yeah. And it, actually, you know, it actually takes a while to craft an interview into, they're basically monologues as yeah. they appear in the book. Yeah. It, but the, when I turned the conversation into them telling their story, I sent it back to them and some of them made little changes and others were yeah. happy with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember I interviewed Anthony Donaldson, who's one of the, the eight people that sort of tell their story in the book. Yeah. And I, I didn't have to change anything. He'd, yeah, I bet. He'd, he'd thought so carefully about what he wanted to say and he yeah, just came in and said his piece. And it's yeah. wonderful, you know, provocative and acute. And I've seen him deliver some of his, like, kind of little lecture talk things about, you know, and he might do a talk on, like, the development of the hi-hat as a component yeah. of the drum cut. And when he stands up to do it, he's, it's just so clear. He's mapped it all out. Yeah. And he knows exactly where he's going yeah. with it. And he just takes you with him. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it was an unbelievable honour yeah. to be able to sit with you know, about forty New, Ze- New Zealand jazz musicians and yeah. hear them tell me their stories, and we just we, we hung out and talked about stuff, and then eight of those became people telling their story essentially. Yeah. And the rest of the material was crafted into chapters that that deal with issues. So I, I've got to you know sort of speak my mind about a few things, I suppose, yeah. informed by the testimony of these musicians. Yeah. But I, I do especially like the, the bits where the musicians just tell their stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to, to, to uh, for a bit to where we left your sort of your timeline, I guess. So you, you've got this job, you buy a house, you're in Christchurch, and what's going on for you musically? Are you, are you heading home from the limb factory and, and you know, tickling at the ivories? Yeah. Keeping your hand in? As soon as I left, <laughs> left school, I started forming bands. Yeah. And... Um, I don't think we were very good, but we were pretty enthusiastic and we rehearsed reasonably often. Probably the best musician amongst us was the drummer, um, yeah. uh, Greg Donaldson. He's the nephew of Malcolm McNeil and he's still busy in Christchurch. Right. He's a wonderful drummer, beautiful natural feel yeah. and a lovely, lovely man. Uh, and then my two friends, Andrew Wright, who played guitar, and he was a wonderful guitar player, and Chris Bartlett, who played bass. And who now, were these jazz bands no, per no, se, no, or no. were you more into the sort of prog? It was totally a ex- yeah. prog. You know, we were listening, we'd go home and listen to King Crimson. Yeah. And Gentle Giant was you know, yeah. a band I still listen to and get pleasure from. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the craft of their music is so exquisite. Yeah. 
know, and being I, I, I like the Sex Pistols too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was, you know, prog got a bit of a bad name through the 90s. Yes, it did. Me, I, I never understood. I've, I've always enjoyed it. And it's weird because it informs some of the biggest bands in the 90s, like Radiohead and that, you know, like they are a version, the, the hipsters would hate hearing this, but they are a version of a prog band. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, again, it's that thing of pop melodies with a bit of progs. Yeah. Yeah. Like listening to a record like in Rainbows, you know, the yeah. beautiful tapestries. And yes. It, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. music. Yeah. yeah. And so this is this thing is that we all, and, and I think now people probably are, one of the great things about the more sort of democratisation of music or whatever and the, you know, less reliance on a physical store that stocks things by genre is kids are probably getting to this much quicker that music is music and it doesn't really matter what, you know, where it's pigeonholed, but when, you know, people like us that do a lot of listening to music, you you will arrive at this thing that music is music, and it, like you just said, you like Sex Pistols, you like King Crimson, you like Keith Jarrett. Those three things don't go together, but why can't they? They go together. Yeah. In my that's what I say, why yeah. can't they? But yeah. but someone else would tell you, oh, they don't go together. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, yeah, I wonder if, you know, the, the sort of the improvement on telecommunications and the proliferation yeah. of editorial content that we have because of the net means yeah. that there, there aren't these sort of overriding monolithic voices telling yeah. us what is okay and what isn't okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and where sort of, it goes. Yeah, you know, yeah. who cares? Yeah. And, and who says that because he writes, because is Graham Marcus right? I don't know. Yeah. That's an interesting viewpoint, but there are some others. Yeah. So uh, I quite like that there are, well, as I was saying, more voices in the conversation. And yeah. it's actually so confusing now that you just have to make up your own <laughs> mind. And that's not a bad that's thing. That's not a bad thing at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there's somewhere along the lines, I mean, I, I feel like I've kind of, uh, I don't want to say I've suffered from this like a victim because I've probably been my own worst enemy in some ways. But somewhere there's this idea that the, the writer... Is, come back to that thing you're saying somewhere there's this idea I think people have that the writer thinks they're right mm. and actually the writer is just hopefully is just putting a voice out there an opinion out yeah. there and you're supposed to arrive at the work just like with anything like music or a painting on the wall you're supposed to arrive at it with some information yourself and or, or go and gather some information mm. to then re-look at the work yeah. and I think it's the same with you know critical evaluations reviews um, you know anything, any and any kind of journalism really, that there is a, there is some uh, onus on the reader to bring something of themselves to it, mm. not just to go. I grabbed my information from there from that person who thinks they're right. Now I think I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Roland Bass writes about this in the death of the author, which is really you know worth reading for everybody. Really, mm. the, the notion that. The, the person who creates meaning is the reader yeah. or in the case of music the listener and yeah. I, I really love that I, not that we should completely dismiss the intentions of the author or the composer yeah yeah yes yeah. it's, it's useful perhaps to be mindful of that but ultimately the sense you make of something is the sense that you make of it yeah and however you you get contextual information or whatever yeah yeah so I, I've, I've found that a terrifically empowering idea and it's one that I share with my students yeah yeah make up your own minds about this yeah so okay so you are uh, playing Music that is, you know, reaching for the stars and, uh, you know, at reaching for the heavens um, and sprawling all over the place. And and what's the next phase? How long does that go for? And, you, you know, where do you feel you get with that? Um, what does it do for you? 
Yeah. It was enormously satisfying to be playing that music. Yeah. And, to, and, and actually, the thing I most love about being a musician is hanging with musicians. Yeah. They're just, they're, they're interesting people. You know, the hang is the best bit in yeah. some ways, you know, yeah. just being around those people because you love them. And when you make music with someone, that's quite a naked thing to do. So you really get to know each other. Yeah. And they can be your best and worst friends. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting and, and complex kind of yeah. sociology around that. So that was fun. The music, I think, was probably terrifically ordinary. <laughs> yeah. And and I couldn't play very well. Um, I think I was probably, in some ways, I, I had good technical knowledge of, of mm. my instrument and theory and stuff, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And that that was fine, you know, for yeah. thrashing away in rehearsal rooms in the odd in the odd gig. Yeah. Um, when I got became very interested in jazz. And I, th- I thought I wanted to learn to play that. So I got some lessons from a guy called Gavin Shepard, who's a piano player in Christchurch. And uh, he just showed me some ways to voice chords and told me to buy a real book. And so I started learning a few jazz tunes and applied to come to the Wellington Conservatorium of Music in their jazz program. Yeah. And I, I didn't actually understand anything about jazz, although my listening was very sophisticated. So I was listening to Miles in the 60s and really digging it, although I had no idea what was going on. I just loved yeah. the noise they made. Yeah. Um, and by some extraordinary fluke, um, was offered a place in the school. I, I, it sort of really astounds me that it happened now. <laughs> yeah. it, partly I learned to play a Bill Evans piece, and I think um, Paul Dine and Lee Jackson, who auditioned me, were very sympathetic to Bill Evans. And maybe they had really crappy piano players <laughs> applying it. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I shouldn't have been offered a place, but I think they recognised that my appetite was yeah uh, that you were gonna you were gonna be voracious I you were gonna go for it once you got once that door opened yeah so they opened the door for me for which I yeah. remain eternally grateful and and I walked through it and seized the music with both hands and I was practicing four or five hours every day yeah and totally applied myself such that I went back to Christchurch after my first year in Wellington and played a tape of me playing jazz to my friend Greg Donaldson and he couldn't believe how much I improved right you know, going from someone who couldn't play jazz at all to someone who was doing a half decent job of something. <laughs> and so that's that's amazing validation too, because you're saying, you know, one of the great things about music is the hang. And so a guy like that, whose ability you respect and whose friendship you have, for him, for him to make that recognisation, that's big validation for you. Oh right? yeah, it, I, I, there was no doubt in my mind that I was doing the right thing. I'd felt, I remember getting to, to music school and thinking, oh, I was poor on earth to do this. Yeah. Just to be focusing all my time on music yeah. and it was all so new uh, I was and the the teachers were great it was my piano lessons with Lee Jackson who's you know a master musician and his knowledge of harmony was astounding so he opened this whole world to me of stuff that I'd heard on records but I had no idea how to access and I so you know when he showed me how to play an ultra dominant chord suddenly it was all over my playing and, I, and he had to learn to moderate that of course but I just loved being able to find those things and Paul Dine and Roger Sellers, who taught me about you know, the one another life of being a musician and the importance of groove. So it was a, an outstanding experience for me, yeah. you know, life-changing. Yeah, yeah. So that's what, three years? Yeah, it was three years full-time. This was yeah. from 1990 to 92. Yeah. And then you hit, what, huh. hit the street going, yeah. what do I do with this? Someone or what? Said, yeah. Jazz, <laughs> music of unemployment. Um, yeah, so and, what happens... You know, I went to music school thinking, well, I'll do this for three years. Yeah. 
and then I'll go and be a professional musician because I assumed it was yeah. like everything else. You get the training, and yeah, you just yeah. Do then you unleashed on the world, and you know, I, I thought, right, I'm going to go to Europe. I think that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just I'll work clubs in the circuit there, and and boy, was I in for a shock. I actually worked out before I finished music school that it was really difficult to yeah. to sort of extract any kind of living from performing music. I think there are careers in music, but as a as a performer exclusively almost non-existent yeah. in this country. Yeah, yeah. And really, really difficult in larger territories. Is that where you sort of make the realisation that, you know, you can put together a, an income by being a, an educator as well as a player? Or when does that, you know... Is I, I, I looked at the jobs that were done, and I remember thinking... Paul Dine's job is the one that I want, and he was the head of the jazz studies yeah. program. And you know, you should be careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, and I, I think it was partly because I recognised that, as wonderful as music is, it on its in isolation, it's not enough for me. I actually get a bit bored if I just right. do music all the time. Yeah. And it's a it's a selfish game. Yeah. And I wanted other things to be in my life, and it, it's it's quite useful to arrive at those independently of realising that it's actually not financially possible in this yeah. country anyway to, yeah. to play jazz or to play music that's that's a bit fringy and to yeah. make a living from it yeah. as, a, as a performer. Um, I certainly know people that make a living by teaching and yes. by doing all kinds of music. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. If, if you're saying I really single-mindedly want to pursue my personal musical vision, then I think it's probably unrealistic in a territory as small as New Zealand to expect to earn a living by playing your own music. Yeah. In fact, it's probably unrealistic almost anywhere unless you're unbelievably lucky. Yeah. And I make a point of telling that to my students. If you want to yeah. be jazz musicians... And, uh, and unbelievably good. Uh, you know, it has to be both, right? Yeah, well, unbelievably something. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. There's certainly plenty of music that's not very well played, but yes. it's successful. And no, but I mean in terms of, like, say, uh, international jazzers, and this. You know, great. What you realise is great players are dime a dozen in a sense, yeah. right? Like, you yeah. know, there are lots of great players in the world, and and there are lots of great players in Wellington. You know, yeah. but but um, you know, who are the truly great players, or or what do they do that makes them stand out, and or what are they writing or performing that yeah. means something? Yeah, well, I I, I think that's right. You, chops are cheap. Yeah. You know, you can. There are the world's full of people with basically perfect technical yeah. skills now. That wasn't true 40 years ago, but it is yeah. now. And music schools have have, some, have contributed to that. See, uh, Mike Knox's a good example, I think, of you know, uh, there's there's something to me very magical about his his playing. Now there are, I guess, there are better piano players than him. You know, I'm not, he's not the world's absolute greatest piano player, but there is. He's a personality player, and yet his personality never gets fully in the way of the music. And he's, you know, what you know, resourceful and and very clever as a composer. And he's he, his scope is very broad in terms of what he can do. He's also a guy who you know is an educator, right? He can't make a living off just putting out records or playing gigs, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And it seems to me the musicians that are successful usually have, they're certainly above a threshold of competence. Yes. But as important, possibly more important, is they've got an idea or some yeah. ideas. They've got a, they've got an angle. Yeah. Uh, so and, and Mike is that musician. He'd be the first to tell you there are better piano players in the world. Yeah. He talked about being at Berkeley when Keith Jarrett was there. Yeah. And thinking, you know, if if I worked really hard for ten years, I could maybe get to where he is now. But where would he be then? 
So yeah. he, he recognised that in terms of his capacity as a piano player, he was always a little bit behind the eight ball relative to his peers. Yeah. But Mike, has, he's got an interesting groove, yeah. and he writes great small group tunes, yeah. and uh, he's got good energy and performance. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. There's really a sparkle in, yeah. his, you know, in his whole kind of bag, right? Yeah. Like there's a, a cheeky wink in his playing. Yeah, yeah, he's a gnome in the Garden of Jazz yeah. or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that thing too of, of taste over, over technique and talent, like... Mm. You know, he, when I I chatted with him last year, and he said, um, you know, he was happy to say, a guy like Keith Jarrett, a lot of his music wasn't for him, you know, but but he'll acknowledge how good he is. But then he'd say, you know, a, a lot of the stuff he was doing, I didn't really get that into, you know. So, doesn't mean that he thinks what he's doing yeah. is better. It's just he listens to music differently and he plays it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you survey Mike's records and Keith's records, they're, they're, they're different kinds of animals. And yeah. At times they sort of approach each other. Yes. And at other times, you know, you think, oh, you know. Oh, I was I a part, yeah. Couldn't. If you listen to, you know, quartet records, you know, yeah. so Keith Jarrett in the late 70s with Jan Garberick, they're utterly different from yeah. Mike's small group records. Yeah. You know, from maybe Ozbopping or something like that. Yeah. It's a different sensibility. Yeah. Um, so you, you are playing and you are teaching you get into teaching yeah I, I came back I lived in the UK after finishing okay. at music school and, and went and basically woodshedded and went and heard as much music as I could and practiced really really a lot yeah and came back to New Zealand and I, you know, I was gigging a bit but you're playing piano bars and, and restaurants and you know there, there were almost no gigs in Wellington at that time yeah uh, and I so I, I had day jobs yeah um, as, which was was interesting work um, then went back to the States with the intention of doing a master's degree. Uh, and I studied in Philadelphia and spent some time living in Berkeley and uh, was back in New Zealand for some reason, getting some qualifications actually to go into a master's program in the US when a job became available at the Wellington Conservatorium of Music. Yeah. Uh, and for which I applied. And again, they took a chance on me, but I think they recognised that I'd be a good institutional person. There are certainly better piano players around, but... Yeah, uh, you know, as someone that would be a diligent servant of the department, I, yeah. I was a good bet, and I, I hope I well, I think I did, you know, justify their faith in me. Yeah. So I did a bit of piano teaching, but found myself doing a lot of classroom teaching, um, and it wasn't terribly long before I recognised that that was actually where I wanted to direct my energies. Uh, and now, as a as a uh, an older person, I'm not remotely interested in teaching people how to play an instrument. Lots of young, outstanding musicians who yeah. can do that. I'm much more interested in helping people to develop an idea, actually, yeah, to develop yeah. some critical thinking, so that, I mean, you, you can teach someone to play autumn leaves, but you need to help people to develop their own ideas about how to do that in a way that's interesting. Yeah, and why they would want to do it, yeah, yeah and exactly. why, what, you know, why they would want to put their version out into the world, yeah. and what's special about them do, that tune and them doing it. And the world doesn't need another version of Autumn Leaves. But it can handle a very, very good yeah. version of yeah. it, right? Rather we, than... You yeah. don't need it, but... Yeah, but doesn't mean you can't do it if you yeah. can do it. And, and maybe you can add something to the conversation. Yeah, I think the world doesn't need any more songs, actually. Like, in, in, some, you know, in some sense, the world doesn't really need any more songs. So, you know, this, this sort of attitude of the... I, I worry about the sort of... the entitlement of the songwriter... Mm. You know, I think you know what's. I don't think we should all go and join covers bands, but I don't see what the issue is with you know. Mm. I sat next to you at Bill Frizzell the other week, and in fact, that's when we first met, and uh, we probably had quite different 
uh, opinions of that show but um, one thing that I think came out of that show is um, that he was able to at the best bits of that show they were able to kind of shine a light on songs that people hadn't really even thought of as you know those, some of those movie soundtracks really lovely songs beautiful melodies but almost relegated to that Mantovani type stuff you grew up with yeah. in, in a lot of people's minds yeah. and yet here was a guy who has all sorts of pedigree as you know arguably the greatest one of the greatest and most influential guitarists of the last 25 years in his field uh, reducing himself down to being a conduit for new versions of these you know dusty old immigrants yeah. yeah yeah it was an interesting concept you know, and beautiful in places. So, you know, I, I enjoyed You Only Live Twice. Yeah, yeah. It was like, wow, you can do that with that. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's a great, you know, that's a, and, and, and even the even the sort of, you know, Moon River, which was, wasn't really that different from several versions of it, but there was just something about it, the placement of it, and, and the kind of control that they all had. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe the world doesn't need more songs, but yeah. when I, I listened to the new Radiohead album and they got to the numbers in the track yeah. or something, I went, you know, oh, this is an outstanding song, you know, yeah. I'm glad this isn't the now. So, oh yeah, that doesn't mean you should keep trying. But I'm just saying, like you know, you don't get an instant sort of you, you don't get an instant pass that you've got a guitar and a voice, so your song needs to be heard. You've got to get good at it, and you've got to put something out into the world that deserves to be there, not oh, just sure. not just you know another song that is. Gee, there are a lot of boring songs. A lot of boring songs. Yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of boring. You know, and to take it out of the context of pop songs, there's a lot of boring jazz, right? There's a lot of really boring. Jazz, you know, jazz is its own worst enemy in a way in terms of the bad name that it has with some people. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, when, when the music is good, it's transcendent. Yeah, but boy, it's not often not, not that good. Well, a lot of people's idea of jazz too, if they haven't immersed themselves in it, is only the very worst. Right, so it's it's only that kind of. You I know, heard this you, band playing yeah, in a bar, and it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, well, or, maybe it was. <laughs> or, almost like kind of music box stuff, you know, like just total, mm. like lightweight background, you know, stuff, or, or or barely competent players. And if that's someone's experience, you can see why they get quite turned off to that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, and there's so much of it. And, and you know the difference between an Art Pepper record and a, and a you know, Lee Konitz record is, yeah. is very subtle unless you're really quite attenuated. That, yes. You know, so, and, but there are a lot of genres like that. You know, heavy metal is this enormous, vast genre now. Yeah. But unless you're really you know tuned into that, the differences between a, two or three or four different bands, uh, you know, it's yeah. a bit opaque. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you spend what the late '90s teaching, playing. You've got family. What else? What's going on? Yeah, so I, I I was appointed to the permanent faculty in 1998. Yeah, the, was the Wellington Conservatorium of Music as part of the Wellington Polytechnic yeah. in those days, which became part of Massey and subsequently the New Zealand School of Music. And I was there for um, I think 17 years. Yeah, and it was a wonderful career. Yeah, uh, I met lots of beautiful young people with a terrific appetite for music and who went on to do interesting things. Um, I was actually reflecting this on, on the way here, thinking that two of the musicians. Who, who I had the good fortune to, to have a little bit of involvement with, who have done really interesting things, are Luke Buda yeah. and Thomas Oliver. Yeah, right. And, and But neither of them did a degree. Yeah. Both of them came in and cherry-picked a couple of things that they thought were useful for them. Luke did a little six-month program, and I think Thomas did one or two courses. Yeah, and, right. And I think they, they were really strategic. And 
they're successful as musicians not because they, they got all this information at music school but because they had an appetite and they had an idea and then they worked hard and cultivated some yeah. schools, skills yeah. and I like the music that they both make yeah. the new album with Luke Teeth yeah. it's terrific isn't it it's sort of psychedelic doom yeah 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 brilliant you know yeah and you know Thomas is riveting in concert. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's delightful to me that that people were able to come in and get something. From, uh, and yeah. I hope that the students that came through my courses were able to get something of value. Yeah. It certainly, was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I was just going to say what you know there there is one of the great kind of cliches of any kind of teaching or coaching is that the the person at the helm talks about how much they get back from the students. How much they learn about themselves, how much they, you know, I guess feel fulfilled for, um, for guiding people. Uh, you must have, you know, loads of experiences around that. And yeah, I'm I'm very grateful. My, I really love my students, Simon. I yeah. really dig them, and I think they can tell. So even if they're not necessarily getting much from the content, at least we have a nice time together. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they've said kind things to me over the years. These days, the thing that most motivates me in the classroom is that I want students to think for themselves. Yeah. I want them to engage in critical thinking, is the language that we'd use in the academy. And I, I retired from the New Zealand School of Music a few years ago, and I just do a little bit of part-time teaching for Massey now, yeah. which I'm really enjoying. And for, I guess for the last decade, the thing that has most exercised me is that the students can learn to listen and to read some stuff and think about it and draw their own conclusions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do that for two reasons. First of all, that, that makes them good citizens. Citizens. You know, if we can do that in life, we can we can think for ourselves and, and vote sensibly or yeah, behave yeah. sensibly in civic, civic um, uh, environments. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, because as I was saying, I think the thing that makes musicians interesting is that they have an idea, they've got a unique take. I've met students and I've I've had them through my courses who develop really fine technical skills, but don't really develop a personal take on the music. Right. Yeah. And as well as they play, they'll only ever be glorified sidemen, I think, mm. until they they think actually music is about this for me. Yeah. And Bill Frizzell is a case in point. He doesn't sound like any other jazz guitarist on no. the planet. Although there are a bunch that try to sound like him. Yeah, now. that's right. But when he, I remember him emerging in the eighties, yeah, it was like what? Yeah. Man, where did this come from? Yeah, you know, it's sort of Hendrix meets Can meets Jim Hall. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah, and, and he had an idea. John Schofield's the same. He had an idea and he put some things together that didn't properly belong together. Yeah, you know, he put Joe Pass with BB King or whatever it was yeah, that he yeah. did. So I, I think you know the combination. But also those guys again, just to cut it. I mean, mm. you know, their formative things. You're talking about Bill Frizzell working with a guy like John Zord and mm. Schofield working with say people like Miles Davis. Yeah. You know, they have those big teachers mm. that are helping them yeah. to shape those ideas, right? But I bet a big lesson from someone like Miles, and John's one too, is yeah. do your own thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, work your thing. Work yes. your, sound like yourself. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. I, you know, Miles was big on that. He really wanted people to, he wanted people to develop their thing and to play beyond themselves. Yeah. Play what you don't know yet was one of his things. Yeah, yeah. So, in, in my teaching, I'm hoping to, inculcate those kind of values and maybe if I can help develop the students develop their critical skills and their thinking so that when they have an, an idea that's interesting they'll recognise it and go oh I could do this and here are some ways I could get it that way gee I'd never thought of putting those things together yeah. what happens if I do that yeah, yeah. Um, again it's sort of like you know people that do the sort of standard whinge about teachers of any kind it, it's that thing that I guess, I guess there is 
it's such a position of responsibility that I think we don't, you know, value correctly financially and otherwise because I think like it probably is not a lot worse in the world than a very bad teacher mm. across whatever discipline but you know a, a really great teacher is we, we remember them you know like I still think of my my favorite teachers at school the ones that made an impact sports coaches yeah. you know mm. I've reconnected I, I didn't get music lessons for long but I've reconnected with a couple of the people that gave me you know music lessons because I remember what they were about, what they were, mm. what they were trying to sell, you know, yeah. in the in the right meaning of the word, like what they were trying to instill. Yeah, we we carry all that stuff with us. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's it, it, it a big responsibility. I, I think so, but also a tremendous privilege. Yeah, uh, and so it, it's something that I take seriously. I I prepare assiduously and I mark carefully, and yeah, because there's an opportunity to to give something to someone yeah uh, a good something or a bad something yeah I'd like to get that right I, you know at the end of my life I hope when the accounting is done I'll have done a good job yeah. in that space you yeah know, on my deathbed I think well I, at least I did right by those kids yeah <laughs> so when do you when, does, when do you get um, I want to know when you start doing things like the reviews on Cots FM because yours is a voice on Cots FM um you know that I that I enjoy and I've enjoyed for a while and and so when does that come into things for you? Um, that happened almost by accident, really. Roger Fox was doing something once a fortnight on Concert FM with Eva Radich, and yeah. you know Roger in some ways is the public face of jazz in New Zealand. Yes, um, and and I think they decided that as good as it was to have Roger talk about stuff, it would be nice to have some different voices and. I'm not sure how, I, I expect what happened was Roger said, well, what about getting Norman on? Because we were working together at the School of Music yeah. at that time. Uh, and it's, it's an, I love radio. I listen to radio. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a really neat medium to be you're, involved You're very in. good on it, you know. Thank you. you. you know, I really enjoy, uh, you know, as I say, like, I had a different overall response to Bill Frizzell from you. I made a point of going and listening to your, oh. you know, to your review, your comment on it. And I could complete you know it's that great thing of of good reviewing i could completely see exactly what you were saying and why you arrived at you know and where you arrived and i could totally valid and uh, and i think you're quite respectful um of the people that were really digging it and quite understanding of how because i thought i thought the same thing that sh to me that show was mind-blowing but I've spent a lot of time with, with not just all of his records, but particularly the last few. I've spent a lot, you know, and I knew what I was going in for. And I think if you did it, you could have been quite disappointed. Yeah, if you didn't know. It was a beautiful concert. Yeah. Was, you know, but my favourite for Zell is with Paul Motion, I joke. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which can be as delicate yes. and diaphanous as a spider's web. Or it can be this fucking torrential downpour yes. of lava, yeah. you know, which and it, it's all beautiful. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I just, I just wanted the volcano for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's that, and it's that thing of someone like that where you know he's done so much, and yeah. this is the one and only time. You know, I don't know. I doubt he'll be back. This is the one and only time he plays in New Zealand. So there is a yeah. sort of disappointment around. You know, not so much we wanted a you wanted a, a sampler greatest hits of everything he does, but just those points that you yeah. want him to hit. You know, it's not going to happen. He gave us what it said on the tin. Yeah. And, and you know, fundamentally that's professional. And, yes. And it was really good. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. In a jazz concert, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you're, yeah, you're, um, 
you're very good at putting that stuff across on the radio. I mean, and I imagine um, Eva is great to work with because she's, uh, you know, onto it. Yeah, <laughs> to, she, you know, she she, she makes she makes a point she of. She can ask good questions. Yeah, yeah, and she's well researched. Like, like, yeah, and, and we talk about what we're going to. Yeah, 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 about, yeah. So yeah, yeah, sure. But I mean, she's a good. She's a great professional broadcaster you know oh, like, good fun yeah 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 yeah. that's right have a cup of tea and a bit of a laugh and yeah 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 cool. so you've been doing that for uh, quite a while yeah i guess a dozen years now yeah um, right. th- there was quite regular work at radio new zealand for some time but yeah. of course their circumstances are straightened these days yes uh, and so the opportunity for that the upbeat show has been contracted from yeah. 90 minutes to 60 minutes yeah, so they yeah. don't have regular um commentary spots which i yeah, used to yeah. do on jazz yeah um, and actually, well, that, that's fine. I, I'm quite happy not to be speaking regularly about jazz these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I just I know I've listened to you for, for for years on the air, but I don't know how many years. You know, it's one of those things that happens with with RNZ. You just get used to these familiar voices, and you forget how long it's you know it's been. Um, so, uh, the big kind of collaboration that is ongoing that uh, is really this one with Bill Manhire and, and, and Hannah Griffin. Yeah. So that when does that kick in? Mid-2000s? Yeah. In um, 2001, I studied in Boston at the New England Conservatory of Music, and, which was a wonderful experience. And my composition teacher there was just in classes, not one-on-one teaching. It was a guy called Frank Halberg, who's yeah. a good jazz piano player and a very interesting composer. And part of the, the course, he got us all to write a song, and he said, I want you to go and find a bit of text in a newspaper or in a magazine or yeah. a poem and set it, use it and set it the words. So all kinds of things came back in. But I, I said a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. We, we didn't take many books with us to Boston, but um, we had a, a collection of E.E. E. Cummings' poems, and I found one that I liked particularly and set that as a song. Uh, and then it, when I got back to New Zealand in 2002, I guess, uh, I performed that in a, in a lunchtime concert with Hannah, just that song and some other music. Uh, and thought, oh, that's really quite fun. I'd like to do more of that. So over the next few years, I set a number of E.E. Cummings poems, and we made an album in 2008 of E.E. Cummings poetry with Hannah and Colin Hemmingson on reeds and Nick Van Dyke on trumpet. Um, And that was really fun, but I I, I was talking to Fergus Barrowman, who's a good friend, and said to Fergus, you know, I've, I've enjoyed this Cummings stuff, but I'd like to work with something closer to home. And he said, okay. Here and he gave me a pile of about a dozen books by New Zealand, different New Zealand poets. Yeah, and I, I'd never read Jenny Bornholt before then. Right. I loved it. It was yeah, really yeah, great. She's um, you know, and Michael Jackson and yeah. um, James Brown with all the musician names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and and others. Um, but the ones that really leapt off the page for me were Bill's from the Collected Poems yes. um, volume, especially some of the early poems. Yeah, and instantly I felt kind of a musical possibility. So I, I set about eight of them in record time, just in weeks, really, really fast. Uh, and then arranged to do a concert and contacted Bill and said, I've you know, set some of your poems as songs. Oh, right, so you, d- you didn't actually contact him until after you, you did but I, I thought he should come along and hear what I've done. Did, did, you, did you know him on no. any level at all? No, not at all. Yeah, right. So the first time I met him was at this concert. I was really quite nervous. Here's your work that I've <laughs> yeah. just cut up and... and Potentially destroyed in, yeah. in his mind. I was, I was deeply respectful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Actually, but, um, of course. But, you know, obviously, you know, a, a, quite a different kind of nuance can attach to a poem when it's said as a song. But poem, uh, Bill was sort of sympathetic. He was quite warm. Yeah. And I think he was especially pleased with Hannah's voice. Yes. And he contacted me a week or two later and said, should we have a cup of tea? And I've got, got some ideas. So we got together and his first suggestion was, well, why don't I write 
20 possible titles, you and Hannah choose the ones that you like the look of, and then I'll go away and see if I can turn those into songs. So he began writing uh, initially, so I think Buddhist Rain might have been yeah. one of his proposed titles, and I right. said, I like, we like that one. Yeah. And there were some others, Pacific Raft might have been one. So the first album that we did of Bill's material, which is called Buddhist Rain, a yes. number of those were titles that Hannah and I had said, well, we like that one, that yeah, he'd written right. a sort of a, a, a bespoke poem for. And that album also contains some existing poems, so My Sunshine is a well-known poem of his yes. that I've said on that album, and, yeah. and some others. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was the beginning, and, and I, I guess he's been happy with, with what we've done, or at the least he's enjoyed the, the, the interaction. So that, that Oh yeah, I think, well, it, I'm sure he's been very happy with it, but uh, you know, it, it, it just, I'm amazed by what a winning combination and collaboration it is every time you know you've actually done a lot of work together now yeah. and um and yeah i think we've we've discussed this before maybe in emails and that but obviously hannah's uh, such a talent that i imagine she's a, a joy to work and i mean i used to work with hannah mm. So I know her, you know, I know her pretty well, and and uh, but as a singer, she's really extraordinary. And I think, I don't know what your thought on this is. Maybe you'll completely disagree with me here, but I saw some parallels when watching Bill Frizzell, watching Petra Hayden sing, who, who I love, and and have followed her across several things she did. There was something in her, in the way she was being used as a vocalist, that reminded me of Hannah. I think it's just that purity of the voice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite funny. I actually felt a bit churlish being negative about the concert because I thought if someone came to one of my shows, yeah. this is basically what they get. Not as good. <laughs> well, that's but, really yeah, funny. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we'll get yeah, into that because yeah, I was going to say that's yeah, an interesting thing through yeah. being a performer and a critic, which yeah. you are, you know, like, so, which which has strengths and weaknesses yeah. to it. Yeah. But no, I just, there was something in, in her, I think it's just that sort of the unaffected, yeah. you know, mm. treatment of the voice, yeah. the, the, the purity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Hannah's really quite an extraordinary talent. Hannah is a, an amazing singer and I, I think I introduce her as my favourite musician. Yeah. And, well, one of my favourites because there are you know, a few others that I get to work with too, but, you know, her, her musicality, as good as her voice is, her musicality yes. is even better. She makes such good choices and has such uh, a beautiful understanding of how the music might go. And, and I think as an interpreter, she's matured in astounding ways in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so if we were talking recently about our E.E. Cummings project, and she said, I'd really like to re-record those. Right. It'd be really interesting to do that. Sit in the car With the headlights She spends a lot of time with the text now, trying to understand what the poem might be about. Yeah. And um, that informs her performances. So yeah. we did a record of a bunch of New Zealand poems called Small Holes in the Silence. Yeah. Which for me, I think is probably our best album. Yeah. Uh, and partly we spent a lot of time, you know, developing those performances. And and we're working with Hayden Chisholm, the saxophone player, so yeah, he yeah. brings out something really remarkable, yes. astounding. Uh, but I, I, I just love the 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 nuance and the the insight I guess that Hannah brings to those texts yes, when she yeah. sings rain it sounds like that's what Hone Tufere meant yeah 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 of course there are other ways to do it and I like Don McGlashan's I was just going to say this is, yeah. comes back to that thing of the cover versions and the you know like I think that setting that Don McGlashan did was was amazing but you're right I think you know 
your treatment with Hannah is, Hayden is amazing. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it smells like it grew out of yes. the ground to me. Yeah. And, Don McLashan is one of my heroes, and, yeah, yeah. and I love his version of Rain. Yeah, but I I like ours, and I, I like that it brings a different thing. And it yeah, you're you're yeah. You're, you're allowed to like both. They're yeah, different, you yeah. know. Like yeah, they're not they're not competing. So you know, for, for me, Hannah is is just you know the perfect collaborator. Yeah, and such a wonderful. You know, she's part of my family really. She turns yeah, up yeah. on rehearsal night and has dinner with us. And, yeah, and she's, yeah. You know, she's her family's at home, and, and yeah. she'll joke with my kids and, and go and find the milk to make the tea. Yeah. And, and then we'll go and play some music in the living room. My daughter said she loves going to sleep when um, when Hannah's rehearsing. Wow, yeah, she that's so cool. Um, and there's this sort of, uh, you know, I've always thought there's this mischievousness about uh, so much of Bill Manhire's work. There's a, a very wry humour. <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes it's more than that. Like, you know, sometimes he flat out is clouding around yeah. and sometimes he's deathly serious. But there's, oh, there is this wry kind of humour that rolls through his work. And I think um, you guys have have found a way to kind of convey that in the musical setting, but, you know, with a respect so that it's you're not trying to force anything out of the words that isn't already there. Oh, thank you. That's that's lovely to hear that. We, you know, I really wanted his his poems are so good. Yeah. You know, you, it's the Hippocratic oath that doctors take first: yeah. do no harm. Yeah. And as a musician, yeah, yeah. If, am words, I going to make this worse yeah, than it already yeah, is? No. If I, you know, if I'm going to, you know. And in some ways, you can't. You know, yeah. how can you detract from from a poem? You know, yeah. You know, a poem as good as what you know, but. Um, by the same token, I, I don't want to sort of mess it up for people. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so this is a collaboration that's gone on over a, over well over a decade now at various yeah. different angles. It's got 10 years yeah. So yeah. we've done four, I think yeah. four, yeah. four albums of just Bill's material. Yeah. Um, and that's been an incredible privilege. He's a wonderful man, such an interesting yeah. and smart guy and really good fun to be with. Yeah. He's really fun to tour with and to do gigs with. And he's got a wonderful way with audiences. You know, yeah, yeah. He is, he's his well, I love, that he's, I love that he's part of the show too. Like, you know, that he obviously he's, he has got a very, well, I guess like a, a lot of good poets, it becomes about their reading of, of the work as a big part of it. So I like that he, you know, he does some readings and he's... Almost just there in the audience as a presence too, mm. you know. Uh, you know, he's not he's not involved musically, mm. but even when he's just in the audience, at, at the shows I've seen that you guys have done, that's kind of part of the performance. Mm. Just like a an igno- you know. Frequently, he will declaim some poems or talk yeah. a bit about the text. In, yeah. In the in our concerts. Yeah. Often they're, they're that way. I remember we we played an arts festival in Tauranga, and Bill said to me afterwards. He's really amazed at how happy the audiences are. And they come and talk to us. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember a woman saying, you know, look, you broke me. I was in tears. But she was so happy when she told us this. Yeah. And it was, it's really interesting. So I wonder if the, the sort of the pathos aspect of rhetoric is, is amplified. Somehow music mm. kind of plays those strings in our bodies more than the, than the, the meaning of the, you know, the, the logos of, of the poems. As, as much as there might be some sort of pathos in the words, the music amplifies that or softens people to be receptive to that in some ways. Well, you guys recorded, um, I think it was released as Making Baby Float, which yeah. was a live version yeah. of 
you know, several of the texts, and it was yeah. a live DVD and yeah. an album. And I remember being at that concert, and yeah, it was it was you know, it's a, it's a curse, isn't it, when you're supposed to be able to write about music and that it was hard to put it into words. But there was this feeling of just um, elation, joy, you know, like a real deep. I felt a really deep sort of um, inspiration from from all of you. The idea that you know, I guess. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, who was it? Was it um, what's his name? Uh, Tom Robbins said, you know, the great thing about art is that it serves no purpose. Like, uh, when you think about it, it's true. Like, we don't, we don't need it in our lives to get by, but we crave it. Mm. You know, th- those of us that want it crave it. And so to to experience something that is sort of profoundly art for the sake of art is a really special thing and that's what I sort of got from that was that it's you know yes this doesn't need to exist you could go and play at a piano bar Bill's poems could stay on the page Hannah could sing some standards somewhere you know like and and we could all get by but this meeting and mingling of these worlds and this decision to to turn something into something else it's quite extravagant isn't it well that's what I'm saying that's what he's saying is it is a luxury like it is a you know it is a luxury but to to, but to see it treated like that to hear it treated like that and to to watch something to to almost be able to see something completely other emerge from these separate disciplines and these separate practices is really quite special oh thank you and and that's our experience it was quite a joyful concert was, I'm glad you thought that made sense. What I was yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was some of the material was hard, and yeah. most of it we'd never played publicly before. So I'm kind of amazed that it's as good as it is. Yeah. <laughs> Although you know, there's a bit of auto tune and things in the, in the choir, <laughs> now, all, all that stuff that happens behind sure. closed doors. <laughs> sure. But you know, the, the feeling in the room was really yeah. lovely. Yeah. And yeah. And you know, they were, mostly they were quite new texts. Yeah. There were some extent poems, um, but. But uh, it was you know, there was, was a feeling of discovery on on, on the bandstand, but we we got it we got it right enough too. So do you want to give a plug to the latest the latest work because that's pretty new. In fact, it's so new I've only I've I've got this and I've only uh, listened to it very briefly. But um, I've read I've read the book and it's a lovely it's a lovely uh, presentation, lovely package. So this is called Tell Me My Name. It's you and Hannah and uh, Bill again and the other collaborator here is there's some photographs Peter Perrier Peter Perrier photographs yeah. and Martin Risley joined us on violins yeah. and yeah. also Sue Prescott plays some whistles and some bow on and things so the, the the original this is a project that we've actually been working on for almost four years and yeah. it started off as a collection of songs called Compass Songs which were kind of about finding your way in life but one or two of them were sort of a bit like riddles and when we played it through to a, we've got a small group of people that we, we audition this stuff to and yeah. early in its life it felt like the the riddly charmy spell ones were working better so Bill thought oh why don't I write a few more of those and it turned into a project being about riddles it took a number of iterations and there's a whole lot of songs that right. some of which are quite good yeah, but yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're being set aside and maybe they'll come yeah, yeah I was going to say so you might go back to them and could do. recontextualise there's, those there's, into... there's at least an album worth of songs yeah. that we haven't done right um, maybe just from this project, but certainly over the years. Uh, so it's turned into an album with ten riddles, uh, in the Anglo-Saxon riddle, which was the, a style where, where something will explain or declaim what it is. Yeah. At the end, say, "Tell me my name." So this is the the 
the solution to the riddle telling the world what you know in, in, a, in an opaque or misdirected way what it is yeah so 10 of those and then three other songs that offer some some context and some yeah. some around that uh, martin Riley plays violin beautifully and sue sue prescott playing whistles uh and the sound is a little bit celtic yes but we worked with this one on thomas voice who's a wonderful engineer a fantastic musician just a genuinely beautiful human being really yeah yeah he runs rhombus studios yeah uh, and we decided to make quite a different sort of record, uh, very deliberately. We've made albums in big rooms on big pianos that sound very pristine and lovely, but we went for something a bit different. So he did a lot of work to degrade the sounds. So the, the piano track was put into a cassette tape recorder and then played back into the master tape. So there's wow and flutter and, yeah. and clipping and those kind of things. So that it's a very different sounding record for us. Uh, such that I think it might unsettle some people that like the sound that we've been before now. But I quite like it. It feels homemade. It's very yeah. evocative. Yeah. It sounds like it was recorded in the Tokoro Hall yeah, you yeah. Know, on, a, on a beat up old upright piano. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I quite like that. Uh, yeah. It was interesting to do. And so this is still pretty new, new out in the world. It came out a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Quite, quite recent. Quite, quite new. Yeah. Um, and do you have a desire to, are you working on, or do you have a desire, do you think, to go back to playing? I mean, yeah, this has been like a decade of 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 what I imagine is is your main playing outlet. Do you have a desire to go and make a, a jazz record again, or a record? You know, like that we were talking about that record you did Montegliano, which mm. was mid two thousands, which I loved. Mm. Um, is there more of that in you? Yeah. Um, late last year, I recorded with Hayden Chisholm, the saxophone player, and Paul Dine, and we made a trio record without a drummer, right. uh, which we were releasing shortly on Rattle. I'd actually thought that I wouldn't make another jazz record. Uh, a lot of reasons around that. Partly I'm just a bit sick of it, actually. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, 20 years of teaching that music and listening to it almost exclusively, I'm just tired yeah. of it. My yeah. ears are sick of I'm tired of putting it into my head. Yeah. Um, but this tour we did with Hayden, he's so beautiful and such a gorgeous player and musician yeah. and a lovely guy. And we had such a ball, and when we recorded, we got a beautiful sound again. Thomas Voice recorded us, yeah, uh, and he's mixed it, and Mike Gibson has mastered that, and it sounds lovely. Oh, I look forward to hearing that. Hayden, yeah. Hayden is uh, maybe one of the best in the world at what he does. I yeah, know, he's I, I mean, but it's, has, I, I really only know it's playing for that small holes album, but it's really extraordinary. It's it, just extraordinary it's, is the word. Yeah, it's it's, it's you know, I'm, and it's and again, it contributes to those. That those feelings of being yeah. like joyous and uplifting, and yeah. you know, it's a huge, you know, yeah, there's tremendous a core of tremendous beauty in this music. Yes, and, and I'm an okay piano player, and Paul's a really good bass player, but both of us felt like we played absolutely at the top of our game because he he drew us up, he raised us up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually pleased with my piano playing, yeah, which I right. don't often say. <laughs> uh, and for me, for me, I think Paul sounds as good, maybe better on this than anything else he's recorded. Wow, yeah, and it's right. partly because. He could hear himself. He was playing in, a, in St Andrews on the Terrace. We were recorded. He yeah. sounded really good, and the music is quite open. I was. I, I, it's always quite interesting those sort of drummerless jazz trio albums. And I was going to say, what was that like for you? But then I guess for, it's probably more interesting for for Paul because you're doing a you know the the work you've been doing with Hatter and Bill and that is is sort of in that mm. context. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love drums, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't like boom, pat, boom, pat. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't need that. Yeah. Um, the trumpet player, Chet Baker, once said, it takes a pretty good drummer to be better than no drummer at all. Yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, 
may be true. You know? so, yeah. And I love drummers that can be very delicate and that can play a range of sounds. Yeah. And if they can do that with groove, which is really hard to do, it's it's to play with groove, people often need to play quite hard. Yes. Um, but if they can get groove with light sounds and different timbres, I'm really interested. Yeah, like Ant Donaldson's good at that. Ant can do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's loads that can, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but he is really good at that. Some, yeah. some young people around you, Corey Chan, yeah, can do yeah. that. Roger Sellers in a jazz style can play with yes. incredible delicacy and yeah. with great time. But I'm, I'm interested in drummers that where you go, well, that's, well, you know, that's an interesting way to approach the drum set. But it's great. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, growing up playing the drums, I obviously, like, I love jazz, and obviously there were a lot of great jazz records with great drumming on it, but I can't remember what it was. Um, I used to love listening to the Oscar Peterson trio records, and then I think it was someone, uh, might have been reading an interview, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a drumming magazine or something about this great trio record with... Um, guitar, piano and bass and no drums mm. and how this this drummer had said, you know, listening to that record was one of the most informative things for him mm. as a drummer and I really latched onto that, like, yeah, it's mm. great to listen to the instrument that you, because the instrument you play generally is the instrument you gravitate mm. to, you know, you're pulled towards as a listener, becomes that way. So I quite enjoyed listening, to, I got quite hooked on listening to, yeah, these drummerless jazz trio yeah. records yeah. of that thinking how could it, exactly what you said how how could you improve that like what yeah. would you do to be better than yeah. no drummer and and what's happening here yeah. and and what is it making these people play differently it obviously yeah. is all yeah. of those sorts of questions yeah and you know there a drummer like steve jansen who's yeah. in japan yeah and he was on a, on a collaboration called dolphin brothers yeah and you know the, the sounds he gets are so beautiful. Yeah. Manu Kashay is a drummer that I really enjoy listening to. His yes. groove is beautiful, but the colours are surprising and nuanced and different. And he's done a couple, he did a couple of uh, just really lovely small combo jazz records recently that, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're not doing anything special except for how beautifully they're played. It's, they're lovely, yeah. yeah. Playground yeah. and... Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the first one with Jan Gabrick and yeah. Thomas Denko. They're just like, there's not a note out of place, they're just lovely. And yes, you could go and hear that elsewhere, so you, but, you know, it's just really nicely done. Yeah. So, you know, and th that kind of drummer I'd be very interested in working with. But, yeah, right. Um, you know, at, at the moment, not working with a drummer. Yeah. Uh, although, I've, I've got a project that I might, it's, it's kind of like Pink Floyd without a drummer, actually. Yeah, this yeah. was with Hannah and Bill's words, but yeah. with a guitar player and with a bass player. Oh, cool. So that's... Um, and we're going to record it, I think. And when we do, I think we might add percussion. Yeah. And Lance Phillip is, is open to that. And he's beautiful. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Another great like colourist. Yeah. Chris O'Connor would be really yes. lovely in that space. Yeah, of course. Too. So, you know, we have these musicians. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really quite lucky when, when you start naming names, isn't yeah. it? Isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and what about uh, the writing work? I mean, three, you, you've three, four books. Are, are there going to be more? Yes. And, you, you know, what are you... In the middle of something, or um, I'm I'm at the beginning of one of two things. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent time in Boston in 2016 with a drummer called Bob Moses. Yes, and Moses played with Roshan Roland Kirk. Uh, he was in the Free Spirits with Larry Coryell. Yeah, he made albums through the 70s with his own groups, and he played with Gary Burton a lot. So he's a jazz drummer, but he's kind of a world music drummer as well. Yeah. But I spent a week with Moses doing interviews, and I the plan is to write his biography. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I haven't started that. That's that's sort of the next taxi on the rank, I think. I haven't had time this year to make a start, but 
very soon I'm going to be looking at those tapes. Yeah. But I did a PhD um, some years ago on creativity in jazz, and that was really, really interesting work. And I was looking again at that last year and thinking, I think there's a nice small book here. There's a, there's a story to be told about jazz that I haven't really seen in print before. Yeah. That I think is is both insightful for people that want to play any music, really, but also is applicable more broadly than, than to, to domains outside of music. Yeah, so, yeah. So that, that maybe, I'm not quite sure what, what I'm going to do, but I, probably Moses, but the creative yeah. jazz idea is sort of lurking there. So you're not slowing down at all? <laughs> One of, the reasons, like, one of the reasons I retired from yeah. the School of Music was to have time to get on with these things. Right, I was going to say, because it's a bit like, um, and I guess there's a parallel that maybe you've even discussed, but it's like uh, Bill Manhire seems to have uh, had a really prolific streak just recently because, you know, there's not only this project with you, there was the collected short stories the other year which had some new things in it, and then a brand new volume of poetry, which which is amazing, yeah. like... I've, uh, you know, I've got to go back and reread it, obviously, but I've read it right through, and I think it's some of his finest work. Which, obviously, you know, that's a that's a lofty thing to say about a guy that good, but I really think it's incredible. But, you know, he he obviously, I remember talking to him years ago when he was still running the the, the writing course, and it was like there was no time to do his own work. How could there be? Yeah. And so, the, and then you have to adjust a little bit out of giving something like that up because you give so much of yourself to it as I imagine would be the case with you with the with the yeah. School of Music yeah, well, t- teaching was tremendous and I think Bill loved teaching too but yeah. there are two aspects to it that are a little bit counterproductive to creative work and one yes. is just you don't have much time Yeah. but the second is that you spend your life looking at student work which you know as good as it sometimes is it's not like listening to really great albums or reading yes. really great books Yeah. you know when I read student essays they're yeah. generally not very well written it's developmental you know yeah. it's so a stage of the process too it's not yeah. helping me to raise my game as a yes. writer and I, I don't want to be cheerless about that I'm very very glad to, to of course students, but I, I'm aware that when yeah. you're swimming in those waters yeah. it doesn't necessarily help your own game yeah, so yeah. by separating myself from that world as Bill has done I think yeah. it's been really really productive yeah, yeah, now, yeah. of course we have less money but by the same token hopefully <laughs> yeah. we're doing better work yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um, what 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 else is in the? I mean, that's that's heaps of things that are going on already. But what else is in the? Uh, you know, pipeline, or what else do you want to mention or put across that you're doing? Is there anything else mm. that you want to plug? I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything <laughs> to plug exactly. But you know, it, it's really lovely to have time. One of the, one of the things I said to my partner when I gave up work was that I wanted to uh, have a more contemplative life. And we have very, very busy lives. Yeah. You know, and it's really, really easy. If you've got a broadband connection, you can completely fill your life 24-7 with all kinds of stuff. And Noise, mostly, but much, yes. Well, I mean, if you had really good editorial but, facilities... Yeah, I was going to say, it's a, it's a full-time job yeah. wading through the noise, isn't it? But even then, I, I, I don't actually want that. You know? Yeah. And I think I got to this because I was thinking about Stravinsky, you know, and who made a lot of music. But when we talk about Stravinsky, we talk about six weeks or eight weeks, maybe. Yeah. And maybe he needed to write all of that to get to those. But I thought, you know, I don't want to do more work. I just want to do the, the work that, that counts, the work that really has some punch. If I'm going to put a record into the world, I want to make sure that it's the best I can do now and that it contributes something. So uh, I'm trying to carve out more space, actually to chew my pencil and look out the window, really, and to read and just to think about stuff, in the hope that I'll do something different. Yeah, uh, I can keep. I could keep doing the same stuff, you know, because I know how to do that. 
um, but it doesn't seem to be a lot of point to me to do that. You know, I've already yeah. made those records, so you can make another one like that. Yeah. Why bother? Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping for growth and development, and maybe that'll happen. What sort of things are you, you know, what, what sort of things are you... Uh, reading and experiencing that uh, that you're, you know, adding to the mm. to the influences and adding to the you know inspiration and, and, and hoping to take something from. Um, I read a lot of New Zealand poetry. Um, one thing that interests me is I'm not a nationalist at all, and I you know, but it seems to me that it may be that there is something about being here that shapes in, in New Zealand that shapes our view of the world. Yes. And when I read someone like Dennis Glover. A, a sweet like sings Harry. Yeah, yeah. Really, maybe New Zealand doesn't like that anymore, but I think it was like that, and it, that's a New Zealand that I know. I know about that back blocks New Zealand and bush shirts and the rain, uh, and so I, I'm interested in, in engaging with some of those ideas. Just clarify for me: was was Fergus giving you those books, and then the starting working with Bill? Was that the real uh, opening for you to New Zealand poetry, or had you always? had some interest in it and, and, as a reader I, I had an interest in James K Baxter as a reader yeah uh, and I think he might have been the, oh and Honey Tufare yeah um, we had books by them on the shelf but yes. I had no well, I was going to say they were the ones that at that mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. like when you were growing up they, yeah. they were probably the two that and Janet framed to a degree that yeah. did although she's known mm-hmm. for much more than just her poetry they're the two that kind of were household names or, or approaching that, and right? And we actually read them at school. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, yeah, they I, were taught. I they were Baxter as a 16-year-old Yeah, and, and left school and bought a book of his verse and used to read it. And you know, it is a thought breaking the, the granite heart, you know, that yeah. on, on the death of your body that, you know, really, really touched me in quite deep ways that were about the human condition and somehow about being here. But I, I think my appetite for that has grown in the in the passing years. Mm. Not not that we're exceptional as a nation, but we're ourselves. And I've lived in enough other places long enough to think, well, there's something different about being here. There's a sort of uh, sense too of mourning a loss of that Kiwi identity, right? As yeah. we as we move to catch up with yeah. the world, and we you know bottom lines become bottom lines, and yeah. all of that kind of nonsense. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, but it, it's gee, it's good to live here. I'm really grateful for it. And when I read those those poets and some some writers too, I feel like oh, this is somehow of this place. And I don't understand the yes. mechanism at all. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm interested in engaging with that. And maybe if I can contribute to it's, that. It's the same with a lot of our our music, right? Like there's I don't know what it is, but listening to David Kilgore's guitar is one of the most New Zealand things you can do mm. <laughs> you know and I can't explain it beyond that but I can say I can kind of see the coastline that he probably you know looks out on and occasionally goes surfing around and I can you know I can kind of see that in his guitar playing or or um, you know Don McGlashan's songs and his the waft of his euphonium and there are these things you yeah. know and, and maybe that's imagined maybe we just yeah 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 we're, but, we're but perceiving that we're putting I, that onto it I don't care I yeah. still make it I still make it when I listen to Don McGlashan you know Envy of Angels yes I, that's the New Zealand song for me yeah and gee I'd, I'd like to write one half as good as that yeah know? it's a spectacular song yeah so and and it's so redolent of this country and I, I don't, I don't know why. And maybe it's just in my head. Yeah. But, but if I could contribute to that music in that way, that, that people would listen to it and say, yeah, this is, this is about us. There's nothing wrong with that um, 
stuff that we, you know, we started off talking about that, and like the death of the author stuff, there's nothing wrong with that baggage or whatever you want to call it that we bring to something. But I think one of the things that uh, keeps me writing and talking to people is try to explore that. Like, why do I have these thoughts about these things? And what, what in my life have I, um, you know, why have I gone down this path of putting this much focus onto this? Yeah, and I'm aware that people could make some charge of you know, false nationalism, and, and but I, I, for me that slightly counts as all. So I don't, I don't think I'm, or, or any of us are trying to beat it out of the trope. I think we're yeah. just trying to look in a mirror and see who we are. And it's not, it's not so much forging something as recognizing something. Well, the one profound. You know, it doesn't belong to to all of us in, 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 a, in a bloodline sense, but the one profound culture that we have as a country we've largely ignored for so long that I think there's, mm. you know, it's that searching for some sort of cultural identity. Yeah. And, and you know, my kids pretty correct my today pronunciation. Yeah. I'm so excited by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my parents wouldn't have known. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and, totally. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful... Flowering. Yeah, my son's my son's five, and he's even um, he'll come home from school with words, and I'll say them, and he'll pretty much correct me. No, no, Dad. You know, and, and I'm correcting him on his pronunciation of just about any, everything else. Yeah. But I think that's really awesome. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's so like uh, you know, for what was it Samoan language week the other week, and, and he came home from school and he could count to ten. But you know, and I just thought that this sort of mm. stuff is great like this really sort of opened us to yeah. you know yeah well I, and it kind of draws back to that point I was making earlier about conversation rich conversations with many voices yeah. I think there's there is wisdom in much counsel and when we have many voices and we can listen and think what's valid here what's useful here and draw from among them when we have the conversations when there are more voices raised as we are seeing more and more in New Zealand I hope yeah you know where, where the voice of the tangata whenua is heard yes. and is an important part of the conversation that brings a perspective that maybe corrects us that pulls us back from some things or pushes us toward others not that we'll get it right but inside that framework somehow together we can collectively go somewhere that's that's useful that's fruitful yeah yeah um Man, it's been really great talking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to, to, to touch on or cover off, but I don't, I don't think so. But it was, um, it was such good timing that I ended up sitting next to you at that show because, I, as I said to you, I've, I've wanted to talk to you for this podcast for a while, but I sort of had this idea for, for whatever reason that probably just because we're in the same city and, and, and we've corresponded to that, that I really wanted to kind of meet you before I sent you an email saying, come, come to my house and have a chat. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Yeah. Listen to that you used to say. Can you hear someone drawing plans? Can you hear someone cutting wood? Can you hear someone walking the land? When all the time I wanted to be somewhere that wasn't so new. Where you didn't have to dig yourself out A place to stand Far away From the envy of angels
your place after dark The lights of the town behind these hills I'm wanting so much to see you again I can almost touch the new In front of my wheels I'm painting the sun It's the envy of age. 